Please stand for the reading of the scriptures. Joshua 5, 13 through 6, 27. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you ready for us, or are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day, until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so that they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you shall keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron and holy are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. 
And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire, everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and, and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And, he, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua, uh, who Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. At the cost of the youngest son, shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. All right, if you have your Bibles, Joshua 5 and 6, that's where we are. You can open up, you can turn it on. That's where we're going to be. Last week, we saw the Israelites pass through the Jordan, step into the promised land, and today we see the walls of Jericho come down. This is obviously a very famous passage. Um, and I'll be honest, I learned something this week. I kind of just always thought Jericho was a big deal because it was the first city that Israel was going to come across. And while that probably is pretty much true, I didn't realize how much strategic value the city of Jericho had. Because of the way Canaan was, was set up, if you came in from the east... Jericho was right in the center, and because Canaan had the Jordan River on the east and the mountains on the west, it, whoever had Jericho effectively divides the north from the south. So if you have Jericho, the northern Canaanites, they can't really cooperate with the southern Canaanites, and it gives the Israelites a significant strategic advantage. It was fun this week to read military experts who, uh, who have taken troops into war, assess the military uh, strate- the strategic nature of the city of Jericho. They made it feel like the, the rock of Gibraltar of the promised land. But there was one really big problem. Jericho was also the meanest Tirith of the promised land. So for you non-Lord of the Rings fans, that means it's basically the Fort Knox of the promised land. Jericho not only was strategic, but it was on high ground and it had high walls. I mean, if you read the story, pay attention to how many times we're reminded that the walls are high, that the gates are shut, that no one can come in or go out. This emphasis is placed here over and over again because this is a very hard place to get in. So the story we have in front of us this morning, it's a story about God delivering Jericho over to the hands of the Israelites. And I couldn't look at this passage all week and not think about D-Day. You know, this week we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. This obviously was one of the largest and most significant invasions in all of human history. My grandfather was on the third wave of that invasion. Because Hitler was setting up what would be known as the Atlantic Wall. All along the western side of Europe, on the coast, he was building a wall from the top of Norway all the way down to the bottom of France. And so here you have, on D-Day, these forces coming in. There is this big wall, and there are enemy troops behind it who need to be displaced because their claim on that land is not legitimate. But the main way that we apply the story of the battle of Jericho. It doesn't have anything to do with physical conquest. It has everything to do with spiritual conquest. 
the story of the Israelites taking Jericho, it very much foreshadows the spiritual battle that we're in today. It foreshadows our battle with sin, our being a part of people being brought out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light as we all together march toward our better promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. So God in this passage, we can see that he has some things if Israel is going to be successful that they both need to do and that he will give them. And because we know that this foreshadows our spiritual battle, we would do well to pay attention because we require the same things and he's offering to give us the very same things if we're going to be successful in our spiritual conquest. But before we dive in, there is an elephant in the room that I have to address before I can say anything else. Is God promoting genocide here? Is this a good God who comes in and wipes out a whole people group? Is this a God who has morals? Is this a God who we can trust? We have to be able to answer these questions, these very important questions, if we're going to, if we're going to understand, interpret, and apply everything that God has for us in this passage. So a few weeks ago, I, I kind of gave a, a brief answer or a, a few thoughts on this, but I want to dive in a little more deep at this point before we move forward in this passage. So first, we have to understand that what is going on here is God's righteous judgment against sin. That's what's going on because the Canaanites were truly horrible people from top to bottom. I mean, we have not only biblical data, but we have archaeological data that that shows us that this group of people, they were not only engaged in, but they were, they were boasting about practices like incest and bestiality and even child sacrifice. So this was a truly, truly horrible society. And we also know from the Bible, if you go back to Deuteronomy, that God was very patient with this group of people. Wiping them off the map was not something God did lightly, and it's not anything that any of us can look at and call him unjust. Go with me to actually Genesis 15. We'll be in Deuteronomy in a second. Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, Egypt, and and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And here's the really important part where we see God's patience. And they, the people, shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why the fourth generation? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He knows these people, the Amorites, they're part of the Canaanites, what we call the Canaanites. The Amorites are there and they're a bad people, but... Their sin and their debauchery has not been fulfilled. It hasn't come full circle. It isn't to the point where God would wipe them off the map. You know, we see God's patience in a similar way, you know, in the, in the story of Sodom. Abraham was pleading for mercy on the city of Sodom. And he says, God, if there are 50 righteous people in this city, will you save it? And God says, yeah, for, for 50 righteous people, I'll save this city. And you get the feeling as you read that Abraham, Abraham knows immediately there are not 50 good people in the city. So immediately he goes, well, what about 40? <laughs> and then what about 20? What about 10? 
If there are 10 good people in this city, would you save it? God said, yes. Sounds a lot like Jericho, doesn't it? And we see that God is patient with people in their sin. We also need to see that this is not an ethnic thing. If this were an ethnic thing, then Rahab and, and whoever it was that it was in her house could not have been saved. So no one can accuse God of some sort of race-based genocide here. And certainly no one could ever point to this passage to justify any such horrible acts. And then lastly, and this is what I said three weeks ago, we see that the Israelites, they are simply the instrument by which God chooses to exact his judgment. You know, it isn't like the Israelites are this beacon of faithfulness and morality and that they have somehow earned this promised land and so merited the opportunity to wipe the people who are already there off the map. And in Deuteronomy, you can see God's going to great lengths to make sure we know this, to make sure they know this and we know this. Look at Deuteronomy 9. Do not say in your heart, After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. So after you've taken Canaan. Do not say it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So what we have going on here is basically two, two different things. God has made a promise of land to Abram, and God has judgment for the people of Canaan. And so what we see here is him basically killing two birds with one stone. That's what he's doing in the story. And we can't help, we have to admit and understand that we read this story as 21st century Americans. And it makes a lot of sense that the more a society looks like that of Canaan, the more that society is gonna resent the judgment being brought against Canaan. And we would all agree our society is rapidly looking more and more like Canaan. So it should make a lot of sense that people increasingly are making these kinds of accusations against the God of the Bible. And because of that, we have to know these answers to be able to understand and communicate to others who this is, the God that we believe in and we serve, this God of Israel who would bring righteous judgment on the people of Canaan. All right, so that's the elephant. Now, hopefully with that removed, we can look at what God requires of Israel and what he gives to Israel. So what does he require? He requires three things in this passage, submission faith and obedience so let's look at these three things first submission we see submission in chapter five with joshua's interaction with this very mysterious man look at verse 13 when joshua was by jericho he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand now i can imagine a very old joshua at this point maybe in his 80s, and he's looking out at Jericho for the second time. You know, when he was in his 40s, he had been sent as a spy. He had stood in this exact same spot, and things did not go well. 
I mean, imagine the opportunity in your 80s to go back to the location of one of the most defining moments of your life. This is what Joshua was doing, and he was looking at the city with very, I think, very sober eyes and very sober mind. And he looks up, and here is this not human, but human-looking man in front of him. So who in the world is this person? Well, we can gather a few things from the text. He introduces himself as the commander of the Lord's army. We know that this person accepts worship. Or at the very least, this person sees himself as a, an acceptable conduit of worship. We know that by virtue of just being there, he makes the ground he's walking on holy. And we don't know any angel who has ever accepted worship from a man. But we do know of someone who was both human and divine, who was holy, who accepted worship, and who said with one word, I can command 12 legions of angels. So who is this? Is it Jesus? Is it what we would call the pre- a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ. So pre-incarnate because he had not yet taken on flesh 2,000 years ago, but he's always existed. You know, we can't think that, you know, before Jesus was the the binity, you know, the bi-unity of God the Father and God the Son, and then Jesus came on the scene and it became a trinity. Jesus has always existed, and we have other accounts in the Old Testament where God the Son comes in the form of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now there is admittedly a lot of debate over this. Some people would say, well, it is God manifesting his presence in bodily form, but it's not Jesus Christ. A lot of people say that. I don't really have a category for God manifesting his presence in a bodily form and it not being Jesus. So given that and just the, the the breadth of scripture, I certainly lean on the side that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ showing up to Joshua. For what it's worth, this is John Calvin's position and Jim Boyce's position and Tim Keller's position, so if I am wrong, I'm in good company. But it also makes sense to me that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ by the way he answers Joshua's question. And so Joshua's looking at this, I would imagine, very imposing figure And he asks him, I think, a very logical question. Are you for us or against us? And how does this man respond? Neither. Which makes a lot of sense that this is Jesus Christ. Because he's in essence saying, no human is important enough for me to be for or against him. The question is, are you for or against me? I'm not for or against anybody. People are for me or they're against me and they submit to me alone. That's what this figure is saying. And I think it's reasonable because next week the President of the United States is coming here to announce his his candidacy for the next election to say that God does not have a candidate ever running for President of the United States. I mean, it doesn't mean that we can't support candidates or work for candidates, but no candidate is God's candidate in the same way that Joshua, that this commander of the Lord's army is neither for or against Joshua. God isn't up in heaven just hoping that that if, if we'll just elect this person, then he can do his will in the United States of America and abroad. 
So we can't ever allow somebody to say, this is God's candidate for that role. But what we can and should say is that every president of the United States of America, whoever they are, if he or she submits to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in his or her life, to that degree, they will be wise, they will lead us well, and we will all benefit. So we're not looking for God's candidate. We're praying for a president who submits his or her will to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Back to the story. At the very least, this is God showing up in some form. He's commanding submission and we see that Joshua does it because he takes off his shoes and he worships. And so should we. If we're gonna walk faithfully into our promised land, we have to submit. We have to see the areas that we're resisting and we're not submitting and we need to understand that that the more we submit to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in our lives, the more we're going to enjoy our relationship with God and the more we're gonna have power and be fruitful in the mission that he's called us to. So they're called to submit, we're called to submit and when we do submit, we get power. And it's kind of ironic that in submission you get power, but that's exactly what we see happening here with Joshua. He submits and he gets power. And this person tells Joshua, this city has already been given to you. This city on a hill with high walls that looks impenetrable. It's already been given to you because you have my power. These walls are going to fall. It doesn't matter how bleak a situation looks if we have access to the power of God through our submission to him. You know, when I read the story, I kind of think of Paul when he was outside of Corinth and he was scared. We don't know exactly why he was scared, but Jesus shows up to him and what does he say? Don't be scared for I have many people in this city. And understanding the power that was granted Paul through that, it motivated him to get up and to go into Corinth and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that is required of Israel and us is submission. The second thing is faith. God gives Joshua a plan. And humanly speaking, this is the worst plan that you could possibly come up with. I mean, all, you're, you're gonna have all your, your warriors stay silent and march around the city behind the ark and behind the priests blowing the trumpets And you're going to do this once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times. I mean, where are the ladders, (laughs) the catapults, the battering rams? None of that is anywhere here. And and not only is this plan insufficient for taking Jericho, (laughs) it's insufficient to even really intimidate them that well. I mean, at, at least they could taunt the people inside the city and say things and yell. But God's very clear, you're to be silent. So to follow through with that plan, it would have required a lot of faith. And what is faith? Faith is believing that God will do what he has said he will do. They would have had to have loads of faith to every day for six days march around that city, probably looking kind of absurd, and seeing nothing happen. Believing that on the seventh day, God will do what he has said he will do. So why is it that God wanted the men to be silent? 
I mean, we saw last week as, the, as everyone followed the ark through the Jordan River, the ark represents the presence of God. And what God wants to do is he wants to show in this plan, the focus isn't on the army of Israel. The focus is on the presence of God. The army of Israel is not going to bring Jericho down. The army of God is going to bring the walls of Jericho down. God's very invisible, but very real army. Do you remember when Elisha, he was in Dothan and the king of Syria had surrounded the city with soldiers and chariots and Elisha's assistant came to him and he said, what are we gonna do? We read this in 2 Kings 6. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There are forces that we cannot see, but it does not mean that they are not there. We need to have faith. We need to have faith that God will do what he says that he's going to do. And sometimes he chooses to do it in very unusual ways. Because he knows that if he does it in an unusual way... It requires faith, it gives him the glory, and it grows our faith. Paul uses the metaphor of a treasure and a jar of clay, which you would never, you would never put a treasure in a jar of clay. It's insufficient for the task. It's easily broken, easily torn into. And Paul says that the treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fragile, breakable, borderline useless jar of clay is us. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been given to us, these jars of clay. And it it makes no sense because what in essence is happening is the greatest message of hope and redemption that can ever come to humanity is placed in the hands of sinful, selfish humans who are to go out and deliver this message to other sinful, selfish human beings who can't even see the the hope in the message that we're offering them. I mean, this plan is, humanly speaking, about as absurd as walking around a city seven times and hoping the walls fall down. And that is exactly how God has set this up. Because the crazier the plan, the more we're looking to the supernatural for answers when it actually happens. I had a friend a few years ago. He was an all-SEC runner, and his specialty was the 400-meter run. And at that time, when he was in college, he, he was less than two seconds off of the current world record in that, in that event. And the world record at that point was held by Michael Johnson. So he's less than two seconds away from his world record. And so I began to think, what if you lined the three of us up? Michael Johnson, my friend, and me. And we did the 400-meter run. And so if if Michael Johnson wins, Michael Johnson gets the glory. If my friend wins, even though he's kind of a dark horse, he's in the game, he would get the glory. But if I won, people are going to be looking for supernatural answers. (laughs) That is how God wants to work. He wants us to be looking for supernatural answers. And the only way that that happens are scenarios that require faith. And this is why the author of Hebrews 
writes, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So Joshua had faith, the Israelites had faith, but I can't move on without pointing out the faith of Rahab. Rahab, who was inside the city, who probably had more at stake in this battle than anybody. I mean, this city was her prison, but she also had faith that God would do what he said he would do through the spies. And for that reason, she too has been preserved in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. So submission, faith, and then finally, God requires obedience. Picking up at 616, we see that the people have marched around the castle, or the city, for six days, seven times on the seventh day. The trumpets are blown, the people yell, the walls come down, and then a grand total of one and a half verses are devoted to what follows. One and a half verses. I mean, that's really not that much. If you were to put a Hollywood movie together on on this passage this morning, it would be like dedicating less than two minutes to the actual battle. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And this seems to be the culminating moment that only a verse and a half. I mean, more, more time is spent making sure the people don't steal things in this passage than, than actually telling us about the battle. Why would this be? Obedience is important to God. He cares about it. We see all over this passage, God is saying, stay silent, march, don't take anything, destroy everything, save Rahab and everywhere, everybody in, in her house. Over and over in this passage, we see that obedience is very important to God. That's why more time is spent on it than the actual battle. Martin Luther, he had this this image of a horse and he said if if you have a horse and on one side of the horse is legalism you know that's looking at obedience to satisfy our own self-righteousness and on the other side of the horse you have licentiousness a total disregard for obedience at all he says the Christian life is basically a drunk man on one side of that horse trying to get up and falling down on the other side and then trying to get back up and falling down on the original side So we have a tenuous relationship at best with obedience. But we have to see that it's important to God. And I believe that this is one of the main things, one of the main misunderstandings that keep people away from Christianity. Because people look at Christianity and they look at it as basically a bunch of boxes to be checked. And we could minimize these boxes, we could maximize these boxes. So if you minimize the boxes, you you create as low of a bar as you can possibly attain. (laughs) So you say, well, I need to make sure I go to church every now and then. You know, I pray every now and then. I probably need to be baptized. Do more good than bad and I'll be okay. Well, that certainly is a gross misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches us about our humanity and our distance from God. But then you have other people who look at at the Bible and Christianity and they see millions of boxes that they'll never be able to check. They say, well, I'll never attain that, so why even try? They fall on the licentious side. Not understanding that the Christian hope affirms that none of us can check every box, but it tells us that Jesus did. 
that Jesus checked every box for it, for us. He's giving us credit for all the work that he does. And this fundamentally changes the role of obedience in the Christian life. It's not a way to get in, it's a way to enjoy. We now obey because we are in a relationship with God and the more we obey, the more we enjoy him because we are beginning to operate within the design that he created for us to thrive. So obedience is is super important, but it's mainly for our good. It isn't simply because God wants to make things hard. It's because he wants us to know him and to enjoy him. That's the Christian hope. So obedience would greatly affect the enjoyment of the Israelites with their God, their success in the mission, and the same is true with us. Those are the three things that God requires of Israel and us. And then briefly, it's really fun to look at what God gave them. God gave them two very specific things. God gave them Rahab and God gave them Jericho. So we're going to finish by looking at these two things. First, Rahab. Life has not gone as it should for this poor woman. She is trapped in the city in a life that no one would desire. And she has heard of the God of the Israelites. At some point, she began to cry out to the God of the Israelites, and the God of the Israelites sent two spies in to get her. It's no coincidence that as the Israelites submit and have faith and obey, that they begin to see and be used in tangible ways by God to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. I know I said this a few weeks ago, but I'm so excited. I want to say it again. Juddy Valaket, who many of you know, he's a, he and his wife, Abby, are good friends of ours. They're church planters in Italy, sent by this church. This is their home church. And he has planted a church. They have planted a church in one of the hardest parts of the world to reach, one of the least fruitful areas of the world, Western Europe. And in just a few Sundays, they are going to baptize 10 people. I mean, they would be the statistical equivalent of us baptizing 75 people in one service here. It's crazy. It's miraculous. And it's happening because you have a small group of maybe 30 people who are submitting, who have faith, and who are doing the best they can to, to obey. And so it shouldn't shock us that they're seeing conversions in the same kind of dramatic way as we see God redeeming Rahab in the story. And what I'm about to say, I don't say lightly, but there is a healthy place in the Christian faith if we are not seeing conversions among us to ask ourselves, are we being faithful to what we're called to do? As a pastor, if we're not seeing conversions, I've got to ask myself, am I being faithful to what it is I've been called to do? And, you know, the past few months have been fun. There's been growth in the church. There are probably two to three hundred new people who have come in here and and with some regularity. But of, of those hundreds of people, I only know of one new believer. Just one. And so I don't say this to guilt or shame anybody, but to call us to to prayer and assessment and evaluate. Are we submitting and having faith and obeying in the way that God wants us to? Because there are Rahabs out there. 
And we know by his word he wants to use us to reach them. And I think one of the biggest hindrances to being used in this way is that we don't realize we are all Rahab. All of us, all of us were locked in a fortress of our sin with impenetrable walls. And the only reason any of us got out and any of us sees this is because God by his Holy Spirit broke in. He tore down those walls and he called us out. And the more that we see that our plight was just as desperate as Rahab's, the more motivated we're gonna be to go out and rescue others. So God gave them Rahab. And then secondly, he gave them Jericho. So we need to see at a 30,000 foot level what's going on as they get Jericho. Because when they get Jericho, they're not simply getting their foot in the promised land. They are gaining the promised land. This is the decisive battle. The war is not finished, but the battle has been won. The kingdom has been fulfilled, but it isn't yet consummated. The promised land is assured, but it's not yet secured. Does this sound familiar? This is our plight exactly. This is exactly where we are. The kingdom, the the promise of our better land, our better promised land in the new heavens and the new earth, it's assured, but it isn't secured. We have promises now that we can enjoy, like forgiveness of our sins and enter into a relationship with God of the universe, but there are promises we will never fully experience until God comes back, until Jesus comes back. And so the theological term that we use for this season that we're in is the already not yet. We already have access to the kingdom. It's already guaranteed. It's already come, but it's not yet consummated. And so when the Israelites gain Jericho, they begin to live in a, an already not yet of sorts, which is exactly where we're living today. And you can see this tension in scripture. In Luke 17, we certainly see the already nature of the kingdom. Being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here he is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. But then we have to balance that with places like Matthew 28, where we're told that Jesus is going to come back in the same way that he left, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and everything is going to be purified. We're going to have glorified bodies. There is an already not yet, and it's not the easiest thing to live in the already not yet. A lot of heresies have actually come about from, from misunderstanding the already not yet, from leaning too, too much into the already or too much into the not yet. It's not an easy place to live. And the more we cease to hold this tension, the less our doctrine is biblically accurate and the more the power that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit wanes in our life and so how do we hold this tension well I think really just knowing that we're to hold it is 80% of the battle because we want to make sure we don't lean too far into the already and not understanding what promises remain for the not yet this will lead to a very frustrating way to lead your life I have a lot of very charismatic friends people I love and 
disagree with on certain things. I think they, the charismatic movement needs to be praised in a lot of ways for their boldness and, and willingness to put themselves out there. But the error is that they have not properly understood what is promised for the already and what remains for the not yet. I had a, a pastor who once asked me, what is the main goal of your ministry, Jim? And I responded and I said, well, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she looked at me and she said, I guess that's a good place to start. Because she wanted to move very quickly past the gospel to the healings and the miracles and the prophecy and all these other things. And all the, these are all things that can happen. And I would affirm and pray for in many ways that God would be healing us and doing miracles. But we understand that all of this will never fully be fulfilled until Jesus comes back, until the not yet happens. So when we live our lives in a way that we take all of the not yet and try and place it in the already, it's frustrating because they're not going to all happen. We know the problem's not with God. So we're going to, at the end of the day, say something's wrong with my faith. I don't have enough faith. I need to pray more. I need to do this more. That's a frustrating way to live the Christian life. It's a powerless way to live the Christian life because we don't hold the tension together the way that God wants us to. So if you want another fancy theological term, that's called over-realized eschatology. It's expecting now what won't really fully happen until the end. So we don't want to do that, but we also want to make sure we don't lean the other way and, and simply put everything else, everything off to the not yet. And if I'm honest, this is the, the problem that churches like us have. We just say, well, all the power is kind of in the future, so we're not really going to even trust God for certain miraculous things. We see all the promise of, the promise and power in the message of Jesus Christ simply as something that will happen when Jesus comes back. And when we live life that way, often we're going to drown ourselves in distractions and addictions until Jesus comes back because we're not experiencing the power that has been given to every spirit-filled believer in the already. So Israel is in a type of already not yet. We are in an already not yet. We hold this tension knowing that what is assured will be secured. And so we leave this passage hopefully clearly understanding how we interpret it in light of where we live now. Now we have a spiritual conquest. Our conquest is for our own hearts and it's for other people's hearts. That's the spiritual conquest we're in. And if we're going to be fruitful in that, then we need to submit, we need to have faith, and we need to obey. And God will Give us Rahab's in the city. He will fulfill the promise of the better promised land fully and completely. And we will reign with him forever there. And so we leave this passage assessing ourselves. How are we doing? Maybe for some of you, you realize you're not in the kingdom. You're trying to check boxes that you will never be able to check. And it's simply by submitting to Jesus Christ that you can come into this kingdom today. And for those others of you, maybe you have known Jesus for decades, but there's no power in your Christian life because you're not submitting. Maybe you're not holding the already, not yet. 
but God wants you to enjoy him. He doesn't put this before us to guilt us or shame us. He does this to draw us closer to him so that we can enjoy him and we can be sent out on mission every Sunday by him to do a task that is fundamentally beyond any of our capacities. But he loves it that way because when people are brought into the kingdom through you, there are only supernatural answers. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this picture of Joshua, of Israel, of an encouraging time where the people do what it is you told them to do. And we are keenly aware that we're never going to do it perfectly all the time. And we pray that the grace of the gospel would sink deeply within our hearts, that that we would we would desire obedience because, because we get more of you and we get to experience you more and we get to see your kingdom expand. You don't need us, you don't need anybody, but in your grace you use us. And as we're used, you conform us. And as we're conformed, we're used even more. So we pray that that would be true among every one of us in this room. And we pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.